On today's episode of the London Lyceum, we talk with Dr. Eric Silverman about the problem of evil and cancer. I think this is a fascinating topic. He's got a uh, new Templeton grant, I think one point something million dollars uh, to research this very topic, and he's been doing research on it in the past with others. Uh, fascinating results, fascinating research going on, and Dr. Silverman is a, a joy to talk to, a joy to be around. He is one of the most gracious people I've ever met. I met him at a conference at his school that he put on on the Virtue of Chastity. Fantastic conference. I think that was last year, maybe. Uh, and just... He is a, a delight and a treat to talk to. So I think everyone knows somebody who's ex- experienced cancer. Now, that's a real serious problem that we all uh, have experiences with. And how that relates to the problem of evil in a philosophical context and just a, a pastoral context even. Really helpful, really interesting stuff here. I think you're really going to enjoy this episode. I'd like to welcome all of our listeners to another episode of the London Lyceum. I'm one of your hosts, Jordan Stefaniak. And I'm your other host, Brandon Askew. And today we are very excited to talk with another guest, Dr. Eric Silverman. Uh, I think you're going to be very interested in this overall project that we discuss um, related to the problem of evil and cancer. So I think pretty much everyone uh, who listens to this and just everyone in general knows somebody that's somewhat close to them that has been affected by cancer. Uh, and I think every person who has cancer, even if it's, you know, uh, a low level cancer or if it's a uh, extreme, you know, stage four type cancer, are going to begin asking questions about um, why do I have this? What does this do to my relationship with God? So I think um, getting to talk with Dr. Silverman on this project that he and several others embarked on is going to be really, really fascinating. So before I give away all of the details of that, I'll let him introduce himself because uh, for our listeners who may not be in- know him and not know about this project, they can get a little bit more bearings on who, who you are and how, how this came about. Great. Thank you so much, Jordan. Uh, well, uh, as you said, I am uh, Eric Silverman. I am a professor of philosophy. Um, I uh, have been here at Christopher Newport University in Virginia uh, for 12 years. Uh, and I have books right now in uh, virtue ethics, in philosophy of religion, um, and uh, and pop pop popular philosophy and pop culture. Um, but uh, but right now my uh, big project is I'm on a million dollar John Templeton Foundation grant, based at Biola University, uh, which is an interdisciplinary grant where we've got psychologists, um, philosophers, and theologians uh, working together. Uh, and what we're doing is we are uh, interviewing uh, Christians who have uh, had cancer um, about the religious significance of the experience uh, to them. Um, and uh, part of one of the projects I've done is I uh, have classified some of the uh, uh, initial uh, interviews by sort of types of responses they gave, types of meanings and explanations uh, that they've uh, given for how and why they had cancer and uh, compared it to traditional philosophical explanations for why suffering and evil exist in this world. Um, also of note, um, I'm a two-time cancer survivor myself. Um, the first time being uh, in 1998, I had Hodgkin's lymphoma uh, diagnosed on my fiance's 24th birthday in the middle of our engagement. Um, so I had six, uh, six months of chemotherapy and a month of radiation and uh, uh, as you probably figured out, I got better. 
Yeah. Um, so, uh, so that uh, sort of brings us to where we are uh, today to make it a, a long story short. Yeah, that's great. And I, I, th- I mean, the fact that you've experienced it yourself probably flavors all of this quite a bit. So I know for me, my mother-in-law has cancer right now and she just, she lived with us for about four months um, as she was doing some of her cancer treatments. Um, they just moved out like two weeks ago or something. So um had quite a bit of experience with it myself recently. Um, just them living in my home and seeing the day-to-day experience of what cancer does to a person. Um, so I, I know it pretty much overtakes your life with all the treatments and the experiences that come with it. So that said, um, this project that you've embarked on, um, I'm kind of, I guess the reason you would pick cancer is partly because, well, you've experienced cancer and it's a widespread thing, or what's the biggest motivation for picking cancer to consider when it comes to religious beliefs? Um, you you know, uh, sometimes uh, things just boil down to opportunities. Uh, I was at a research center at Biola university on a sabbatical about four years ago. Um, and there was a, uh, a call for grant proposals I saw that uh, was about different issues within uh, sort of happiness, suffering, and well-being. And uh, I, I, you know, looked around the uh, the room and uh, uh, talked to uh, Elizabeth Hall, who's the psychologist on this project, and uh, just sort of brainstormed ideas with her. And she, who is also a cancer survivor, uh, much more recently. Um, you know, we, we, we came up with this idea in part because it fit the, the grant call, in part because um, we both have personal experience with it, uh, and, and in part because we, we know that, uh, you know, it's the sort of experience that can really make or break someone's faith. Mm-hmm. So we, we thought it would be uh, interesting to do a, a full-blown study on it, and that very first uh, grant application got denied, but then we got one about uh, three and a half years ago from the a coalition of Christian colleges and universities, a, a very small one. Uh, but that was a very, but, but the grant we had with them was very successful. Uh, we interviewed 30 evangelical uh, cancer patients and, uh, and got uh, four or five articles uh, published from it. Uh, and we, we have the, the million dollar Templeton grant now as a result of the success of that first grant. That's awesome. So, you mentioned evangelicals. Is there a reason you decided to focus on just that subgroup of Christians? Uh, well, you have to start small, um, and and that was where we had the, the easiest ties, as Biola is an is an evangelical Christian university. Okay. Um, but for the Templeton grant, we're expanding into four uh, just different distinct groups. The the first two we are interviewing are uh, people with an African American Christian background within historically black churches. And, uh, and the group of Catholic Christians. Wow. So we're starting with uh, the, those two groups. And one of the things that what we're going to see is, do the, the groups give significantly in different answers, uh, or is there a, sort of a, a traditional recurring Christian core of answers that, uh, that we see? That's really interesting. <laughs> it is. It's a great project to be part of. I, I, I love what I get to do. Can you, can you tell us a little bit about... Um, the team that you put together, this interdisciplinary team, um, the the rationale behind why you chose these different disciplines to to piece together um, this group that's that's heading up the study. Sure, sure. Well, first we should say that 
um, Elizabeth Hall, the, the psychologist, is the primary investigator on this. So we shouldn't say that I put the team together. Mm -hmm. um, that would be uh, misleading. Uh, but I, I think what we, we didn't want to limit ourselves to, to philosophical resources, although even as a philosopher, I'm very religiously informed. Uh, I just don't have the same uh, range of knowledge as a theologian would have. Um, so I believe the initial team had two psychologists, a theologian, myself as the philosopher, and a uh, licensed professional uh, counselor uh, th that does more of the practical work. Um, and uh, we've added some more consultants in, uh, in, in the current group as well. Awesome. So I, I know I'm jumping ahead a little bit, but I am curious for those who want to follow along with this and find, find out the results, which I'm sure are numerous people, where are they going to be able to find those? Do you have like books that you have contracted or articles that they're going to be released? What does that look like? Well, why don't I start with this? Why don't I tell you the articles that we published from that first study from the small grant? Um, uh, and uh, so we already have um, an article forthcoming in the Journal of Analytic Theology. Uh, we have one that's already out in the Journal of Psychology and Theology. Um, we have one out in uh, the Psychology of Religion and Spirituality Journal. Um, I think that's what we've got so far. Did that Was that three or four? I, I just looked. It's three. Um, Oh, oh, and we have one in mental health, religion, and culture. So that's, so that's four. Um, and the, the team on that first study was Eric Silverman, Elizabeth Hall, Laura Shannonhouse, Jamie At Atten, and Jason McMartin. So now the current grant uh, will, we expect to get uh, seven to nine uh, articles out. Yeah. Uh, but that, that's going to take a few years. That makes sense. So why don't we take a step back out as far as scope and, 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 and think through what this problem of evil is. Surely everyone who's listening has an idea of, of what evil is, but, you know, philosophers may speak of the problem of evil in a different way than, you know, a lay person in our church might think of the problem of evil. So can you walk through um, maybe the ex existential problem of evil versus the metaphysical and logical problem of evil and, and which one are you actually um, focusing on in, in your study? Well, again, the problem of evil is sort of a family of problems uh, that stem from uh, first the claim that there is an all-powerful, all-good uh, God that exists, uh, and the, the, the reality that uh, we all experience uh, evil and suffering in some form, and suffering is uh, generally viewed as a, a subtype of, of evil. Um, so uh, the, the different types, I mean, yeah, as a philosopher, just sort of Logically, how these two things are compatible is sort of one nuance to the question. Uh, one question that um, philosophers talk about that really no one else is really that interested in is the, the metaphysical problem of evil, where evil comes from. Uh, and the traditional answer is that, you know, in a certain important sense, nothing is truly evil. Nothing is made evil. It's just less good or misused or, right. uh, you know, lacks certain full, fuller goodnesses. Um, and that, that answer goes back to uh, Augustine. Uh, but for those of us who are suffering from cancer, that answer to that aspect of the problem of evil just isn't very relevant to, to most of us. Mm -hmm. Some people refer to the pastoral 
problem of evil, which is more about counseling people through the experience of, of evil. Um, I, I was just mostly interested in seeing um, what the uh, our interviewees, uh, how they explained it religiously. Yeah. Uh, and the, the number one thing that, that I found surprising, actually, is that most of the people that we interviewed uh, from that in initial evangelical sample uh, didn't really even think there was something to explain. Hmm. They didn't think that there was uh, something odd going on. They didn't think that, uh, you know, unlike philosophers like myself who just sort of obviously see, you know, the logical puzzle, um, you know, the majority of the people in our first uh, study, I think it was about 50, 52% or so, um, just said, no, there's no tension between my, my Christian beliefs and uh, my experience of, of having cancer. Hmm. Where somebody like me has an existential crisis and says, well, why, 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 why was this happening to me? Um, you know, I mean, you know, God's good. Uh, so, so why is this evil thing happening to me? Although my personal experience, I never felt like God didn't exist. I felt like he might be mad at me or something, but mm. uh, it, it never felt uh, uh, it never felt like he didn't exist. It, it definitely felt purposeful. Yeah. How, how often did you get a response along the lines of, is God mad at me? There were a couple. I, I, I don't think there, there wasn't a lot. I, mm. I don't think uh, there wasn't enough for it to be something that, that we discussed at length. Um, I mean, we did get a lot of why is this happening to me? Uh, you know, we did get a lot of um, what am I supposed to do? Um, a lot of uh, answers, which just sort of struggled with the mystery of it. But um, but very few people took the move that, you know, I thought was kind of obvious to do and just say, wait a second, uh, you know, God's supposed to be good. Why is this happening? Hmm. So I guess before, I, I mean, we can talk about the philosophical responses in a little bit. I, I'm kind of curious and just the results of that you've learned in the past, that past grant. Um, did, when you were interviewing these evangelicals, did any of them mention like, I used to think this about God, but now I think this. Was there a shift? You know, um, there were some shifts, but most of the shifts were sort of deepening of understandings. Um, a couple of them, for a few of them, it was sort of spiritually revitalizing for a minority, but it was 20, 30% say things like, um, you know, this... You know, I, I I was too preoccupied with worldly success, and now I'm focused on God and my family, and uh, you know what's really important in life. Yeah. Um, but that was that was a minority. Um, yeah. Let me. I, I can get you some of the statistics if uh, you, you give me a second to to just sort of glance at them. Sure. Um. So, forty-five uh, percent out of that initial uh, group of uh, thirty. Uh, identified at least one aspect uh, of uh, of their experience that that sounded like spiritual growth, sounded like the description of spiritual growth as the uh, result of their cancer. People think saying things like, "quote Before God, before cancer, God was sort of on the periphery of my life at best, uh, but since my illness, uh, God didn't recede into the past. He stayed very strong and present in my life." and was because I made the effort to draw nearer to God, and he'll draw nearer to you. Um, and, and that person uh, says that they draw nearer to God, and that person had a, a terminal diagnosis, hmm. uh, by the way. So it wasn't, um, you know, sort of 
putting a happy face on um, on things, knowing things were going to be just fine. So we had some people who had um, sort of these very positive yeah. spiritual experiences. Um, we also tested for uh, something that we called relational growth. People who uh, said that cancer resulted in them sort of bonding more intimately with uh, the, their families, the people mm. around them, friends. Um, here, here's what one said. I was a little angry to begin with. You know, why me? And, uh, you know, it, it got to a point where I said, well, why not? You know, and I know I was able to minister to other people. I even told the pastor that I worked for that I've got so many more people to call in and saying they've got a cancer diagnosis. So I was able to talk with them and pray with them on the phone. So it was kind of a help for me too, knowing that I wasn't going through it alone and I was able to help other people too. So you've got some people who talk about, um, you know, bonding with other people, uh, having more meaningful relationships with people close to them. Um, a third uh, common category was uh, what we call uh, moral growth. And uh, that was uh, one of the largest groups we had. We had 69% who um, said something about the effects of cancer having a positive effect on them, morally speaking. Um, so one said this, you know, all that's happened is, well, it's breast cancer, you know. It's like one tumbleweed going down after another. And then God is telling me that he's prepared me, that there's something that he wants me to do. He's, it's like he's saying, don't sit back and be selfish. Look for something. He's saying, go out and do something with your life, the life I've given you. So there's a person who talked about moving from being selfish to being more, um, you know, trying to, to, to serve with their life as, as a result of it. Um, and that was a common narrative. That was 69% uh, said things that were like that. I do. I wanted to talk about the, the mystery piece, but I also th I thought it was really interesting that one person just flat out denied the reality of the cancer altogether. They just said, basically, this is not the case. Jesus has died for this disease by his stripes. We are healed. And were they just in total denial the whole time or? Um, well, I, I mean, uh, uh, that, that's sort of how, how we were in, inclined to interpret it. Um, but, but as uh, I'm sure you, you gentlemen know, you've been around uh, Christianity long enough. There's different subgroups of Christians. Mm -hmm. And uh, this was someone who, who believed in sort of what we might call the, the health and wealth uh, view of the gospel and, and that you know, disease is sort of an unreality to him. Um, did they um, did that person give any more detail about their church and their theology outside of that, you know, short response of, you know, Jesus died for this disease? Did they did they go into any more detail or was it just you just inferred that from from how they explained their denial? I'm sure that, that we did uh, get those details, although I don't have them. Easily yeah, accessible. I was just curious. But but yeah, I mean, I, I would assume it was the, that that more uh, charismatic Pentecostal um, school of thought. Yeah. So I know you sent us the Journal of Analytic Theology one that's coming out. Uh, so I was able to read that beforehand, and it seemed interesting that a, a good majority of them kind of attributed seemed to attribute cancer to some mysterious type of plan. Um, and you also mentioned that there was no free will theodicy corroboration in there. That 
both of those responses are really interesting because I know philosophers have, you know, a plethora of ways that they explain evil. Um, and overwhelmingly, based on these responses, we're getting people being skeptical as to having an access to an answer for the problem of evil. Um, and it, the free will defense seems like that is probably one of the more popular philosophical explanations mm -hmm. for the problem of evil. And yet it's not showing up here at the just traditional uh, Christian level. And I obviously you're doing more work in different subgroups. So it'll be really interesting to see if that shifts. Yeah. So um, I, I, you know, we, we didn't really mention the different standard philosophical responses for, for why evil exists, but, but as, as you've just sort of uh, suggested uh, one answer, uh, why do bad things happen? It's because God has given us something good, uh, free will, uh, but that because, you know, we are, are foolish, we, we often misuse the free will. Um, and that, um, that sort of uh, answer uh, works well with, with certain sorts of, uh, of, of types of suffering and evil. So if I asked, you know, well, gee, I got mugged. Why did uh, that robber steal my, my wallet? Uh, well, you know, we're not inclined. We're not inclined to blame God for that. Most of us say, "Well, gee, duh, the the, the robber chose to to mug me, and you know uh, that yeah, that was a result of his own misused free will." Uh, in the same way, maybe if we were focusing on specifically lung cancer people mm -hmm. who had all been smokers, and we have a, we know in our culture there's a, a strong causal connection between smoking and lung cancer. Pretty good chance many of them would have said, "Well." I kind of screwed up. I, I, I smoked too much. I, I read the warning on every package and smoked anyway, and it, it damaged my lungs. And that's kind of a natural result of using free will in that way. Um, mostly by coincidence, we, we, we didn't get many people with, with those sorts of, of cancers. Uh, so for, many can for, for most cancers, we don't know what the exact precise causal link is. Usually it's a combination of genetic propensity towards it plus um, environmental exposures. But, uh, but for a lot of them, there's not this clear action A happened, choice B happened, and that resulted in, in cancer. And I think as a result, um, it's, uh, cancer is a better example of what we sometimes call natural evil rather than moral evil. Something like a tornado or uh, a lightning strike, something that isn't sort of the obvious result of uh, a person's decision. Um, so I, I think that's why people didn't talk about free will so much, but, but I don't think that really weakens the, the free will defense. Uh, I think we could do a different set of studies in a different set of circumstances where everybody would talk about free will, um, just not for these sorts of cancers. Mm -hmm. So was there any, I'm kind of curious as you know, you were the philosopher on the team, so what was your, what was the biggest surprise, like takeaway for you and the responses um, as compared to the the typical, you know, philosophical responses to the problem of evil? I know we discussed the lack of free will response and your ex explanation for that makes perfect sense. You know, the kinds of cancer and um, the kind of evil that cancer is in general. But outside of that, were there any findings that you just did not expect to see that you came across maybe more often? Yeah. Um, I mean, first, I was surprised that most people didn't even see sort of um, a significant problem to be reconciled, you know, between, you know, they, 
they didn't think the problem of evil was a real problem. And I think it's in part because as Christians, if you're a Christian, you have a different view of what human well-being consists in. And, you know, we believe that we are, are not just physical, but spiritual beings. And that as spiritual beings, there are spiritual aspects of the selves that are, you know, real and frankly more important than the physical aspects of the self. So it's very easy to, to think as a Christian, well, you know, Jesus never promised us that life would be physically easy. What he promised us was sort of spiritual renewal, and that's what's really important. So I, I think, so, so, so that's um, both what surprised me was people not perceiving um, a tension between theism and the sort of suffering and cancer, and my explanation for it. So I, I think, uh, uh, so let me get the, uh, find the, the statistic. It was, it was 52% that said that they had, they perceived no tension between their cancer experience and their religious belief. And we actually asked them about that twice in different ways. Mm. Um, so they, so, so, so again, they didn't, it's not that they had a specific solution to it. It's that they didn't think you needed a solution, which is, is, is fascinating to me. And I, again, I think it's just because they were sort of far enough into the Christian worldview that, uh, that they don't think cancer is the worst thing that can happen to you. This is like from a pastoral perspective, that's just really interesting when you think about that response that there's 52% there's said there's no tension. And then you compare that to the, the person who was in utter denial it that's all those that's like the antithesis of the response that the 52 percent gave um there oh there's no there's no problem here there's no tension to be resolved and then you have one person saying no this can't be it, to me it shows just how and i guess this is just me being a a pastor and thinking about how this stuff this kind of teaching seeps into all kinds of churches even if you are not a, a charismatic you know word of faith church that kind of teaching can seep into your church um that that just how far removed that is from a broader historical Christian worldview. Um, well, and, and not just that. I, I mean, it's almost like you just want to ask, well, you, you've noticed people die, right? Right. Yeah. I, I mean, it, that's going to happen at some point. Uh, yeah. It's happened to everyone so far. So when that happens, not if, but when that happens, you know, you, you need better resources than than just – um, saying this doesn't happen or this isn't happening. It's yeah. sort of like I reject reality and want to substitute my own vision of what I want things to be. Um, that was like Al Moller, I think it was Al Moller has said that um, like the, the one big, you know, counterpoint to every, uh, you know, prosperity and health and wealth preacher is that they all die. So he won't listen to one of them until, you know, he runs across one that's at least like 300 years old. You know, his point is like, if, if what they're preaching is true, then they should still be alive. None of them should ever die. But I don't want to go off on a tangent on that, but I just did find that really interesting <laughs> that that 52% response is really the exact opposite of the, the total denial response. But well, I mean, I suppose the total denial of the, the evil, just saying that the evil isn't actually happening. I mean, that that is another way of saying there's no tension. 
you know, between your beliefs and, mm-hmm. and your experience because you're claiming yeah. the experience, you know, fits your beliefs because the experience doesn't mean to them what it means to us. Right. Yeah, that's true. And, and I wonder, I mean, I, I don't know all the questions you guys asked, but I'm, I'm wondering for those people who said there's no tension, how many of those are simply just trying to deny reality themselves um, and try to reconcile it in their minds, this evil thing that's happening and this, the, the truth that I believe is, is true. So instead of trying to intellectually reconcile them, I'm just going to deny parts of reality and look at only sections of it. Does that make sense? Yeah. I will say, I don't think that was a common reaction. I mean, everyone Mm -hmm. seemed to take the cancer pretty seriously. Everyone seemed to agree it was a bad thing and a real thing. Um, you know, people reported negative emotions stemming from it, things like anger and frustration and what I would call angst, although um, we didn't code for angst. Um, but but so um, most of them had what we considered to be very healthy responses. Um, but of course, you know, this is uh, from interviews in many cases years after the fact. So sometimes uh, what my, my worry was that people weren't remembering what their experience was really like. That was one of my fears. Uh, if you looked at uh, some of the, the details I gave you, I think in most cases, the average time between initial diagnosis and interview was around seven years. So, you know, that's enough time to forget a few important details. Forget the day you freaked out. <laughs> so all, all these different answers that you guys gathered, um, I, I'm really interested, does this affirm or undermine particular philosophical responses in general? Or, or is it just kind of separate, interesting data? D- should this inform our philosophical defenses in any way? Well, I, I think this. The, the, the thing that was most striking to me on sort of the positive end, let me, let me see if I can find the, the statistic. Um, I believe it was between the three categories of benefits that we were looking for people without prompting them. We never asked anyone, did you benefit from this experience? But um, between the categories of moral growth, spiritual growth, and relational growth, I think something like 86% of the people at some point during the interview um, pointed to um, at least one distinct example of a way that they benefited from uh, their their cancer experience. And these are the kinds of benefits, relational growth, spiritual growth, moral growth, that are, uh, that, that do appear in many of the uh, answers to why evil happens. So why does evil happen? Well, because uh, it's important that we cling to God or that we become more moral people or, or that we bond with people close to us. And that's more important than physical health or maybe even life itself, ultimately. So those are sort of three distinct but related families of um, of answers for why evil happens uh, theologically and philosophically. Yeah. So I, I, I so the fact ahead. that everybody, almost everyone, mentioned at least some benefit did make it look like it makes those sorts of answers more plausible. Now, yeah. I didn't think it make it made any of the answers implausible. I mean, it didn't help the free will defense at all, but I don't think it, it said anything that contradicted the free will defense. It was just not very relevant to this specific set of suffering for this specific set of people. 
Yeah, and I, I guess it, it makes me think, though. I mean, it, if we want to say that growth, moral development, those types of um, responses are more common, which I think they are, uh, it's curious because I would imagine most people's vision of the afterlife, heaven, would it would include those types of things and yet not include evil. Right. So it makes me wonder, I mean, how sustainable is that to really say that that's part of what evil's supposed to do and yet we can take it away and still get those same benefits? Well, I suppose part of the answer might be something like this. Having experienced evil at some point might be necessary for that sort of eternal growth or some sort of eternal benefit. Um, or to put it differently, uh, you appreciate what you have so much more when you've had a taste of what it might have been like otherwise. Yeah. Um, and, and as you know, Jordan, I, I've edited a book of essays about philosophical mm -hmm. views of heaven. So this is an issue I've thought about a lot, uh, specifically in connection to one another. Yeah. For those who are listening or who are interested in that book, uh, it's Paradise Understood is the title, right? That's right. Yeah. I, I've I've read several of the chapters. I haven't read them all, but I found them all very, very good essays. Uh, so I definitely recommend that. And I'll put that in the show notes along with the other you know journal articles. So if you're listening and you want them, just click the little link and I'll, it'll take you there. Um, That's wonderful. I mean, unfortunately, they haven't made a paperback version yet. So it's it's a little uh, little steep unless you've got a book fund. Uh, yeah. But uh, but that was a great project. We had top uh, philosophers of religion um, engaged in that. If you want, Which, that, sometime maybe I can come back and do an interview about that if you wish. Yeah, that would be terrific. I think, um, did J.T. Turner, was he one of the guys that wrote an essay in there? I feel like he's written on similar things. Um, and I know he's been on the show before. So, um I think that topic is very interesting myself. So we'll, we'll have to schedule that later on. Uh, Brandon, did you have any other questions that you wanted to really ask? No, I don't think so. Okay. Um, I, I'll give you a last word, Dr. Silverman, if there's anything else you want to add uh, to this before we wrap things up. Um, I usually also ask our guests to give our listeners um, if, if you have a way for people to follow you and what you're doing, what you're writing, uh, feel free to mention that or a contact or anything like that. Um, I know a lot of people, some people have like, you know, Twitters and, or blogs or different or just, you know, personal websites, whatever it is. Uh, so if you have any of those things, we'd, we'd love to love to know that. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much. Uh, well, I do have an Amazon page that, that links to my books and I've got uh, four books now and I just got the, the fifth book contract in hand uh, this week. Awesome. Um, so that's so I have those options. I have a personal website that has a list of all my articles. Um, let's see. Uh, I do have a Twitter account. I, I don't use it a lot, but if I, I get enough uh, followers, I, I might feel an obligation to, to post more often. Um, <laughs> I'm also willing. I'm, I'm much more active on Facebook and I'm willing to friend people I haven't met before. If they if they if I, I can get a good look at their profile, and they don't seem like a sociopath. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome um, but, uh well but but thank you so uh yeah the, all my books are under eric jason silverman um and eric silverman is actually a relatively common name so throwing in the the jason will will help uh also specifically searching for things under philosophy yeah so. 
Awesome. Well, we're very thankful you took the time to talk with us about this. I think it's a fascinating subject, and I am very looking forward to all of the, uh, I guess, articles and things that come out of this new Templeton project. So um, I'll be following it closely, and as I see things come out, I will be sure to share them myself because uh, I'm sure that they will be of benefit, not only just, you know, for those who are just interested in the philosophical side, but for those who are interested in the practical side, because uh, I know we have a lot of pastors who listen to, to the show. And I think that having these types of resources will help them minister to people who are struggling with things like this, uh, because it is such a common um, problem. So thanks again for taking the time. Uh, we recommend uh, all of our listeners to check out the work. We'll, we'll link to it as we can. Uh, and as you know, you've been listening to the only analytic Baptist and confessional podcast that exists to my knowledge. So uh, thanks for tuning in. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.